Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. A long ways from a home. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone. A long ways from a home. A long ways from a home. True. Thank you.
Concepts such as the right to universal hospitality, crimes against humanity, the right to have rights, are the legacy of Kantian cosmopolitanism. 
These concepts should not be treated as mere odds. They must generate enforceable norms, not only for individuals, but for collective actors as well, and in the first place, for states and governments. The right to universal hospitality, for example, if it means anything at all, imposes an obligation on the political sovereign by prohibiting states from denying refuge and asylum to those whose intentions are peaceful and if refusing them sojourn would result in their demise. The right to have rights, in Hannah Arendt's memorable formulation, prohibits states from denaturalizing individuals by denying them citizenship rights and state protection. The concept of crimes against humanity expressly prohibits government officials, state bureaucrats and others in position of power from acting in such a way as to engage in murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation and other inhuman acts committed against any civilian population before or during war or persecution on political, racial or religious grounds whether or not in violation of domestic law of the country were perpetrated. These categories are intended to provide not only precepts of individual conduct, but also principles of public morality and institutional justice. They transcend the specific positive laws of any existing legal order by formulating binding norms which no promulgated legislation ought to violate. The evolution of cosmopolitan norms, from crimes against humanity to norms extending to refuge, asylum and immigration, have caught most liberal democracies within a network of obligations to recognize certain rights claims. Although the asymmetry between the demos and the populace, the democratic people and the population as such, has not been overcome, norms of hospitality have gone far beyond what they were in Kant's understanding. The status of alienage is now protected by civil as well as international laws. The guest is no longer a guest, but a resident alien, as we say in American parlance, or a foreign co-citizen, as Europeans say. In a remarkable evolution of the norms of hospitality, within the European Union in particular, the rights of third country nationals are increasingly protected by the European Convention on Fundamental Rights and Freedoms, with the consequence that citizenship, which was once the privileged status entitling one to rights, has now been disaggregated into its constituent elements. Liberal democracies must learn to negotiate these paradoxes between the spread of cosmopolitan norms and the boundedness of democratic communities. The most important conclusion to be drawn from these developments is that the entitlement to rights is no longer dependent on the status of citizenship. Legal resident aliens have been incorporated into civil and social rights regimes, as well as being protected by supra- and subnational legislations. The condition of undocumented aliens, 
as well as refugees and asylum seekers, however, remains in that murky domain between legality and illegality. Until their applications have been approved, refugees and asylum seekers are not entitled to choose freely their domicile or to accept employment. On the whole, refugees and those given asylum are entitled to certain forms of medical care. In some cases, their children can attend school. Undocumented migrants, by contrast, are cut off from rights and benefits and mostly live and work in clandestine conditions. The conflict between sovereignty and hospitality has weakened in intensity, but it has by no means been eliminated. In fact, the EU is caught in contradictory currents that move it toward norms of cosmopolitan justice in the treatment of those who are within its boundaries, while leading it to act in accordance with outmoded Westphalian conceptions of unbridled sovereignty toward those who are on the outside. The negotiations regarding insider and outsider status have become tense and almost warlike. The end of the unitary model of citizenship, therefore, does not mean that its hold on our political imagination or its normative force in guiding our institutions have grown obsolete. It does mean that we must be ready to imagine forms of political agency and subjectivity that anticipate new modalities of political citizenship. In the era of cosmopolitan norms, new forms of political agency have emerged that challenge the distinctions between citizens and long-term residents, insiders and outsiders. The spread of cosmopolitan norms under whose aegis the disaggregation of citizenship proceeds has led to contestations of the boundaries of the demos.
my models of sexuality and gender are in critical rejection of individualism in terms of the singular self or the idea that we discover ourselves in a singular, coherent sense. I think that sexuality and gender are very schizophrenic, fragmented things and often hypocritical and this is of course demonstrated by the reality of closets and how we constantly behave against ourselves in different contexts and perform different sexualities and genders based on who we are around. That's all part of queerness for me. Not queerness in a way that has been polished and smoothed out by academia as something that is reconciled with pride, as in pride trademark movements, but queerness in terms of awkwardness, something that is really grounded in the inescapability of discomfort. The fragmenting of the self and the lack of resolution in any context is part of my politics. So that's why I produce music in different genres and under different aliases, as part of a metaphorical reflection on those broad and at times contradictory themes that are being discussed in the works themselves. I always try to find at least some metaphorical connection between the types of media and producing and the theme at hand. For example, I'm only interested in electroacoustic, particularly sample-based electroacoustic, as it has to do with the idea of how we sample our identities based on cultural inputs on what it is to be masculine or feminine, or what it is to be gay or straight, or queer or pansexual or whatever. All of this is sampling for me. Everything we're doing is sampling, sampling cultures, sampling identities, but at times it reads as natural. That point where it reads natural is when it becomes the most dangerous. The point at which things become naturalized or feel natural is when they become the most unquestionable. Then we build cultures around these unquestionables, such as the presumed factuality and naturalness of these categories of women and men, or homosexual and heterosexual, and all violence becomes justified. All attacks on the unnatural or sick becomes justified because we know in our gut who we are. No, I consider our gut feelings the most suspect of all. Similarly, any attempt to legislate protection and reduce violence must be sold through essentialist arguments of being born this way and we can't help it. That extends to the history of rights from rich white Christians granting rights to poor white Christians, then to white women, then to people of color, then to lesbians and gays, and more recently transgendered people. We don't legislate our right for deviation and variance. We don't protect our capacity for disobedience and true difference. We legislate out of pity, the benevolent master's pity for those beneath them who couldn't help being born into their lesser plight. And I believe that sort of legislation is bound to have repercussions and is patently anti-democratic, despite constantly invoking the rhetoric of democracy. We have yet to leave the age of feudalism and aristocratic arguments of blood rights. What is the difference between an aristocratic claim to rights based on bloodline and LGBT arguments that sexual orientations are not a choice but about nature and genetics? 
We should be legislating the capacity for choice. We should be organizing around our capacity for coping with difference. We should be legislating socially, not naturally. But instead, we only perpetuate the ideological tools of feudalism, clan, family, bloodright, birthright. It's an easy sell because it all seems so natural. Of course lesbians and gays just want to be married with kids, owning their own properties, right? No, a fuck of a lot of us don't, and there is no room for us within contemporary legislation and rights. If we invoke nurture over nature, then we are the true perverts. This remains a dangerous place to be, socially, in every culture I can think of.
One of the stories told by the critical left about the cultural technologies is that of monolithic panoptical social control effortlessly achieved through a smooth, endlessly interlocking system of networks of surveillance. In this narrative, information technology is seen as the most despotic mode of domination yet, generating not just a revolution in capitalist production, but also a revolution in living, social Taylorism, that touches all cultural and social spheres in the home and in the workplace. Through routine gatherings of information about transactions, consumer preferences and credit worthiness, a harvest of information about any individual's whereabouts and movements, tastes, desires, contacts, friends, associates and patterns of work and recreation becomes available in the form of dossiers sold on the tradable information market or is endlessly convertible into other forms of intelligence through computer matching. Advanced pattern recognition technologies facilitate the process of surveillance while data encryption protects it from public accountability. While the debate about privacy has triggered public consciousness about its excesses, the liberal discourse about ethics and damage control in which that debate has been conducted falls short of the more comprehensive analysis of social control and social management offered by left political economists. What happens then in the process by which information gathered up by scavenging in the transactional sphere is systematically converted into intelligence? A surplus value is created for use elsewhere. This surplus information value is more than is needed for public surveillance. It is often information or intelligence culled from consumer polling or statistical analysis of transactional behavior that has no immediate use in the process of routine public surveillance. Indeed, it is this surplus bureaucratic capital that is used for the purpose of forecasting social futures and consequently applied to the task of managing the behavior of mass or aggregate units within those social futures. This surplus intelligence becomes the basis of a whole new industry of futures research that relies upon computer technology to simulate and forecast the shape, activity and behavior of complex social systems. To challenge further the idealist's vision of post-industrial light and magic, we need only look inside the semiconductor workplace itself which is home to the most toxic chemicals known to man, and where worker illness is measured not in quantities of blood spilled on the shop floor, but in the less visible forms of chromosome damage, shrunken testicles, miscarriages, premature deliveries and severe birth defects. The critical left position, or what is sometimes referred as the paranoid position on information technology, imagines or constructs a totalizing monolithic picture of systematic domination. While this story is often characterized as conspiracy theory, its targets, techno-rationality, bureaucratic capitalism, 
are usually too abstract to fit the picture of a social order planned and shaped by a small, conspiring group of centralized power elites. The critical habit of finding unrelieved domination everywhere has certain consequences, one of which is to create a siege mentality, reinforcing the inertia, helplessness and despair that such critiques set out to oppose in the first place. What follows is a politics that can speak only from a victim's position. And when knowledge about surveillance is presented as systematic and infallible, self-censoring is sure to follow. In the psychosocial climate of fear and phobia aroused by the virus scare, there is a responsibility not to be alarmist or to be scared, especially when such moments are profitably seized upon by the sponsors of control technology. In short, the picture of a seamlessly panoptical network of surveillance may be the result of a rather undemocratic, not to mention unsocialist way of thinking predicated upon the recognition of people solely as victims. It is redolent of the old sociological models of mass society and mass culture which cast the majority of society as passive and lobotomized in the face of the cultural patterns of modernization. The seamless interlocking of public and private networks of information and intelligence is not as smooth and even as the critical school of hard domination would suggest. Values already pre-exist the technologies, and the fact that they have become deeply embodied in the structure of popular needs and desires then provides the green light for the acceptance of certain kinds of technology. The principal rationale for introducing new technologies is that they answer to already existing intentions and demands that may be perceived as subjective, but that are never actually within the control of any single set of conspiring individuals. Just as technology is possible only in given discursive situations, one of which is the desire of people to have it for reasons of empowerment, so capitalism is merely the site and not the source of the power that is often autonomously attributed to the owners and sponsors of technology. There is no frame of technological inevitability that has not already interacted with popular needs and desires, no introduction of new machineries of control that has not already been negotiated to some degree in the arena of popular consent. Thus the power to design architecture that incorporates different values must arise from the popular perception that existing technologies are not the only ones, nor are they the best when it comes to individual and collective empowerment. It was this kind of perception, formed around the distrust of big impersonal closed hardware systems and the desire for small, decentralized, interactive machines to facilitate interpersonal communication that built the PC out of hacking expertise in the early 70s. These were as much the partial intentions behind the development of microcomputing technology 
as this killing, monitoring and information gathering are the intentions behind the corporate use of that technology today. The growth of public data networks, bulletin board systems, alternative information and media links and the increasing cheapness of desktop publishing, satellite equipment and international databases are as much the result of local political intentions as the fortified net of globally linked, restricted access information systems is the intentional fantasy of those who seek to profit from centralized control. The picture that emerges from this mapping of intentions is not an inevitably techno-fascist one, but rather the uneven result of cultural struggles over values and meanings.
Music by Jean Lee, Julius Eastman, Vilod, Mats Gustafsson, Ari Prasad Kaurasia, Uval Massa, Daniel Lenz, Richard Devine, Francis Bebe, Jacques Berrocal, Eitre, Ben Lamargay, Robert Aki Aubrey Lowe and Ariel Kalma. Texts by Sayla Ben Habib, Terry Tamlitz, and Andrew Ross. 